like talking about wine, but the one thing I like more than talking about wine is drinking it. This is why, uh, why don't you guys get that first wine poured while we get started. Um, that'll be our Sonoida Dry Rosé. So, uh, along with wine, I'm a little bit obsessed with geology, and so one of my main sort of side projects on my own has been uh, looking at the geology of various different wine regions in Arizona. Just a stopper. Yeah. Um, so, how does this Oh, okay. Let me help. So anyway, uh, this is kind of my collection and smattering of notes and ideas and fun things and did it just freeze? Oh, there we go. Okay, so anyway, brief definitions that you probably already all know, but we got to cover them anyway for clarity. Tawar, of course, comes from the French word terre, meaning land. This word is used in two ways. Way number one, to describe the set of environmental characteristics which affect a crop's properties, example, geology. And it's also used to as a term to describe the character of something from a place, the aroma and the palate. So this is kind of a culmination of both things in this lecture. Next slide, please. No. There. OK, grapes we're focusing on today. Grenache, which originally comes from the Fran France, sort of Rome and Spain. Rod is kind of the famous region there. We got varietal examples from Callaghan Vineyard, Callaghan, sorry, Callaghan Vineyards, Page Frame Sour Cellars, and the Southwest Wine Center. Uh, we've also got uh, Pinot Noir, yes, really, uh, from Chino, Del Rio Springs. And it's often considered not to grow well in Arizona, but I think uh, when you guys taste the one from Del Rio, you'll see that they're on to something. Next slide, please. So why is geology important in relation to wine? Um, and this is quoting myself verbatim because I have a giant head. Uh, for, the geology, for the geologically minded wine critic, Tawar is the signpost of destiny. Already the geologist with his training and sharp eyes can see landscapes that are long gone, present only in fragments. But the critic of the wine who knows the deepest history of a place can parse a wine and kind of get the influences of that geologic history. So it's like parsing like Latin. I'm showing my seminary history here. And you make it alive by saying this wine smells of the ancient sea crashing upon wild shores and actually mean it, as opposed to poetic language that means nothing. Um, but I've always been big on origins, and that's why I feel that Tawar in a geologic sense is important for understanding Tawar in the taste sense. Because I feel that some people, they'll taste something in Wilcox and go, why does this have a limestone minerality on the finish? Well, if you know the geologic history of Wilcox, which, we'll get, which we all will in a minute, you'll know why. Next slide. So you got five major regions, in my opinion, for Arizona wine. You have the Sonoida AVA, which is, of course, the oldest AVA in Arizona, so far only. Uh, not to be confused with, of course, uh, AVA for American Viticultural Area. Not to be confused with Arizona Vineyards Alliance, which just recently happened. Uh, Wilcox, which word on the street is soon going to be an AVA. Uh, the application's been perfected. It's undergoing the comment phase, from what I've heard. The Chiricahua Foothills, um, I think that's geologically distinct from Wilcox. Uh, Gary, who's probably had more experience here than anyone else in the Chiricahua Foothills, will probably agree. Uh, he's been down to Calibri a lot. Uh, we got the Verde Valley, of course, and then we got Chino Valley so far. Next slide. So we're going to start with Sonoida's geology, and that's going to be the longest explanation for these, because I can use that to explain a lot of terms that will show up in just about all the other regions. Um, so this is a geologic map close up of the Sonoida and Elgin AVA. You can see the different layers of rock, different colors. I should have put a key there, but I'm an idiot. 
Uh, the story of Sinoida's geology begins in the Precambrian, or what's also known to geo-nerds as the Proterozoic, i.e. a long-ass time ago. Um, we're looking at billions of years there. Rocks in this area are rare, only found at the summits of nearby mountains. The underlying basement is also Proterozoic, uh, i.e. the base rock layers deep as you can get. Um, all are granitic based, so granite, volcanic. I wasn't quite done with that. I possibly. know, I know. What? No, go I'm, back. I am. Ah! Look! Anyway, yes. So the next oldest re rocks that appear in the region, uh, Paleozoic ocean sediments. Uh, majority of which are from the Naco Formation, roughly the same time period as the Red Rocks in Sedona, um, but deeper down. Uh, we're looking at reef beds, tropical oceans, that sort of thing. So next up. Slide, right? Yes. Right. So the next rocks are from the Jurassic, and here's where the geology gets super fun and super interesting, and there's dinosaurs involved um, eventually. So we've got volcanic deposits intermingled with Aeolian, i.e., desert, sandstones, and conglomerate beds. So what this tells us is that uh, it was kind of like a dry version of the Andes. Uh, so you've got big, huge volcanoes and desert. Um, these form much of the Canelo Hills. And the cool part of it is that it dates the same as the Navajo sandstone up on the res, part of the same desert. And that was a huge desert. Just ergs and ergs of sand. So next up, we got the early Cretaceous, which uh, was not next up for next slide. I thought that meant Sorry. slide. I'll say slide. Okay. Um, so the deposition continued in the early Cretaceous. So climate gets wetter, rocks get rocks show this, so we've got some limestones coming in from the ocean nearby, um, riverbeds, sandstones, mudstones, and the whetstone mountains nearby, you've got fossil dinosaurs. Uh, there are rocks from that same formation near Sonoida, but uh, no one's really explored them yet, so if you guys want to make a field trip to Sonoida and take me along, uh, send me up some wine, I'll see if I can dig up some dinosaurs to bring back with us. Um, but then we've got uh, more volcanic rocks towards the end of the Cretaceous and the Tertiary, i.e. that boundary line between the age of dinosaurs and the age of mammals, Tangential, of course, but uh, it's turned into a bit of a volcanically wild place. You've got tuff, you've got lava, you've got ash beds, you've got volcanic calderas. It's uh, pretty crazy stuff. So then we have what started the basin and range cycle, which is what created the landscape more or less as you see today. Um, it's known as basin and range faulting. Next slide. So as the mountains get thrust up, and actually those mountains right behind you are a great example. We'll get into those a little bit later when we get into the Verde Valley. But uh, you have these mountains that are then faulted up dramatically skyward. They erode, and the valleys in between the mountains, all these deposits get formed, laid down. Lake beds often form in wetter periods. Um, so this whole thing happened between 60 million and 2 million years ago. Um, so this whole thing continues. And it's just the basin and range is more or less what created southern Arizona uh, and the landscapes there. So getting back to the wine is uh, how does this affect the wine? Um, the amount of calcium in the soils in Wilk, I'm sorry, in Sonoida is about five times higher, according to a communication from Mark Barris, a flying leaf, than that in the Kansas settlement. So you need to acidify your irrigation water. Um, so that's what needs to be done there in Sonoida to make your vines grow better. Uh, also, the groundwater here is low in boron and has a high carbonate content as well, thanks to all the limestone that eroded from those ancient oceanic deposits as well as from the lake bed deposits that formed during that basin range faulting. Um, 
basically you've got 16 million years worth of erosional detritus with a lot of limestone that leaves a lot of carbon and a lot of carbonates. And uh, how does this affect uh, the wines? I feel like the wines in Sonoida are a little bit higher in pH than elsewhere in the state, by and large. And uh, I get tangerine and orange notes in all of them, even in varietals where you don't expect that, like Tempranillo. Next slide. So anyway, got the wine here with a pretty, pretty picture. Uh, so it's 100% Grenache, AVA estate fruit coming from Kent Calligan, steel fermented, maceration made rosé, left on the skin for 18 hours. Um, so take a moment to notice the nose. Tell me what you guys see or smell. Don't everybody talk at once. Cherries. Tangerine. So we got cherries, we got tangerine. Mineral finish. Mineral finish. So you didn't follow directions and drank the wine? Mm. <laughs> it's okay, it's in the glass, I expected it. Um, so what are you guys getting on the palate? Again, nobody just all jump out at once. Cherries. Cherries? Do you see cherries? Melissa, what about you? Strawberry? Gary? I'm also getting, along with all the strawberry shortcake and cherry, getting a little bit higher acidity to me. Gary is an acid hound, so he's probably like, this isn't acidic enough for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you also get a little bit of that tangerine on the note. And that's not my full glass. That's my full glass. I'll get this right eventually. Like I said, your only speakers after this can only get better, right? Although, will the others bring one? That's a bigger question. So am I asking too many questions? I was hoping for a little bit more audience participation, but I'll, I'll see what I can do. We'll, we'll warm up. We'll warm up. Don't worry. Don't you worry. <laughs> Booze requires more. Yes. Just allow it to. So, sorry, your question? Can we detect any soils yet? Well, that's coming in with the tangerine notes, I think, because that's something that I get in common with every Sonoida wine from ABA Fruit that I've tasted, which uh, when I was down in Sonoida recently allowed me to pick out some people that seemed to be claiming that they were state fruit and clearly weren't. Um, won't say names, because uh, that's not the point. But the point is, it's something that I get commonly enough to be able to say that this is actually a characteristic of the terroir of Sonoya. So next up, we got Wilcox. Now, this is where uh, you guys come into play, if you guys want to start pouring that. Go ahead and finish your Grenache number one, or pour it out if you don't want to finish it. You're so welcome. But uh, why you would want to finish one is beyond me. So, the proposed AVA for Wilcox, and I've seen in maps, it sends a little bit further out than this, but you can kind of see the big areas, including the Kansas, Kansas settlement, the bench. You've got the area just north of town where uh, Coronado Vineyards is, Fort Bowie of blessed memory, or unblessed memory, depending on who you are, is there as well. Uh, sorry, uh, fun fact orthodox, uh, we say a blessed memory when someone's deceased and the vineyard's dead, so um, Like Sonoida, Wilcox geology centers around that basin and range province again. Uh, which again, repeating myself, but it's important. Mountain ranges separated by valleys. Next slide. So, mountains exposed Precambrian rock. You got similar history of oceans in the Paleozoic. In fact, uh, 
found this out from a paleontologist friend of mine when I was doing research on this. Oh, Dos Cabezas, that was the type of locality for a list of long, extended, unpronounceable shark species. Um, so you had sharks in Wilcox back in the day. Um, most of the geology, unlike Wilcox and the surrounding mountain ranges, is igneous rock from the Mesozoic and Cenozoic. We'll get into that a little bit more with the Chiricahua foothills. Um, but you've got the most recent period of geologic activity in the region, 15 and 8, 15 and 8 million years ago. Modest volcanic activity stretching the crust, fault block mountains. Um, so you have that vertical uh, fault block dropping again, just like what happened in uh, Sonoida which created the setting for the next stage of the valley, which is the kind of important stage, I think. Next slide. I'm good at this, aren't I? Uh, the, the creation itself of the Wilcox Bench was a result of an ancient lake called Lake Cochise. Uh, so you created a closed valley. There was no exit for water, so the water just collected in the center of the valley. Uh, and Sonoran eventually found an outlet, and Wilcox never did. Um, so it allowed it to retain large quantities of rainwater between 2 million and 15,000 years ago. So it's known as Lake Cochise by geology nerds. Um, eventually it began to dry up, but uh, there's still sometimes when it rains a lot, it'll still show up in parts, namely the Wilcox Playa, which is where all the rains go in winter. Um, the Wilcox Bench itself marks the shoreline of part of the ancient lake. It's why the soils are so fertile. It's why it's also a little bit higher than the rest of the Wilcox Basin. Um, so in terms of wines, uh, I've noticed the Wilcox reds tend to be earthier and more or less dustier on the nose and the palate. Um, definitely more so than Sonoida. And they also, when whites, tend to have sort of a limestone minerality in the finish, which is a result of that ancient lake. Next slide. So here's a gratuitous photo that I really, really like that I took of Albiol. Um, but you didn't see it, and apparently not supposed to share that, um, according to Jesse at uh, Albiol. He's like... You can't share that picture on social media. So this isn't social media, so I'll let it slide. It's just really cool. You get that whole layout. You can see the mountains there in the back that form the base of that whole valley. Um, we're looking towards Dragoon Vineyard way off in the distance at the foot of those mountains. Um, you can see that sort of rich soil left by the lake bed. And see also how it's a little bit lower than the rest of the uh, Wilcox Play. Next slide. So we've got the Southwest Wine Center Grenache here, made by you guys. Thanks. Uh, the fruit came from Rolling View Vineyards, once known as Crop Circle. It's all ancient history, um, located on the Wilcox Bench. So, uh, along with those bright, stereotypical Grenache notes, are you guys sort of getting that sort of dust and earth? It almost smells like those monsoon storms coming in on the nose. You'll get them also in the finish of the wine. The finish also has a little bit of tobacco from a little bit of, uh, which is something I've also noticed in a lot of Wilcox reds. And it shows up more prominently in San Giovese, um, where it shows up as a particular type of style of pipe tobacco that I used to smoke religiously. Um, but you see that sort of earthy and spice, which is common for Grenache, but you have that more earthy soil note. It's almost like limestone, gravel, if you're a geologist, we eat a lot of rocks. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, what are one of the ways for determining a rock in the question? Yes. Uh huh. These are all Grenache, with the exception of the last one. Yeah. Um, I chose one single varietal, so that way we can see the varietal characteristics. And you know, we'll, we all know Grenache here in Arizona pretty much, but 
The reason why I chose that grape is because more or less, A, everyone's growing it in all in four out of the five major wine growing, growing regions of Arizona. So that's why I chose Grenache. The exception is our last one, which is Pinot, and we'll get there soon. Any more questions really quick before we? Yeah. Libby, did you have? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, these are all Grenache with the exception of the last one. I chose that for simplicity, and so that way we've got some commonality, so that way we're not trying to pick out varietal characteristics and confusing them for Tawar. Because the varietal characteristics will largely be the same. You've got cherry, strawberry, um, well, those are kind of the two big ones for Grenache, for me, anyway. Uh, I don't know about you guys. But you've got that underlying earthiness here that's uh, different from the Sonoyna one before, which, yes, was rosé, but I've had Grenache rosé from Wilcox that were earthy. It's just how they manifest. Next slide. Oh, uh, the personification, I guess go back. Oh yeah. Um, because we forgot the personification in the last one. Uh, this is a grad student who just finished a research project about to go out to a party and they happen to be nerdy, so it's a D&D &D game. Next slide. Is that Dungeons and Dragons? Of course. Thank you. So let's start pouring the next wine here, which is the Calibri Hilltop Block Grenache. A uh, picture was taken by Gary, which I stole from his Facebook years ago. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Sorry. The same label because it's the same collection of winemakers. Um, right now, there's only two major vineyards that you're going to see. Wines from the Sheriff Hills region around. And that's Lawrence Dunham, or LDV, and Calibri Vineyards out of, out of Page Springs. But there are all some private vineyards that are going in. Um, I know Rob Hellman made some Syrah from one of those vineyards, and I can't remember the name of it. Like me, I feel like I had the word blue in the name somewhere. Um, I want to say it was Blue Dragon, but I know that is not it. Um, it would be an awesome name. So this is the heart of that mountain range where one of those fault block mountain ranges with some additional local flavor. Um, so you got that rough and tumble metamorphic and volcanic rock from the Precambrian. Uh, with some of those ocean limestones, but less than you have in the, some of the other mountains around here. Uh, but you've got some also volcanic. But the big difference was that in the Cenozoic, up until about 15 million years ago, this was a huge super volcanic center, like what Yellowstone was today. Um, you had massive, massive volcanic eruptions, leaving massive cold airs, massive amounts of ash, layers of tuff, sometimes. I think in one place it was about 400, 500, 600 feet deep. Um, so the color, which we're going to be seeing, is a little bit lighter. Can we go next slide? Yes. So um, this is a different Grenache than what's in the picture, but uh, it's from Calibre. I took it the other day when Gary and I were doing research. Uh, research in fluffy air quotes. Um, what he and I have both noticed about Calibre Grenaches, and this is also true for uh, the Lawrence Dunn Grenache um, is that uh, white pepper and clove are prominent. It's, so this is a trait that's normally associated with Syrah, but you find it in all of the reds. And you can just detect that at the edge of the, of the nose here on this wine. Um, both of those are actually present. But also notice it's a little bit more tannic. This is something that seems to be also true of most Calibri fruit that I've noticed. Um, Gary, would you agree with me? Because you're probably you know, the other person here who's had most experience with Calibri 
But yeah, this is more tannic than the other Grenaches we've had today. And you've got that white pepper, you've got that clove, you've got that spice. Um, a little bit of tobacco, but it's, but it's not earthy like the Wilcox Grenache was. So next slide, getting close to home. So this here is a cross section across the Verde Valley on this picture, which is why I chose it rather than looking at the geologic map. Because geologic maps, if you look at the valley from above, are a complete mess for the Verde Valley. It's some really, really messy geology around here. Uh, it's about a billion years in the making. Deep seas, shallow seas, vast deserts, volcanoes like House Mountain, which is really, really one of a kind. Um, and ephemeral lakes and dramatic mountain building events. So the Verde Valley, you already know where it is, but for sake of the listeners in the future podcast, uh, lies between the Black Hills, which is actually the northernmost fault block range of the Basin Range province, and the Muggill Rim, which denotes the edge of the, of the, uh, the Plateau, forgive me, Colorado Plateau. Um, so the oldest rocks are from a Precambrian island arc, so think something like Japan or Indonesia, that are exposed in Drome. Uh, honeymoon block owned by 4433 is on these blocks, but no one is made. It's a decorative vineyard. Um, but what you can see across the valley, we're basically cutting from sort of Jerome across through House Mountain, through Sedona, to the edge of the Muggion Rim near uh, Sycamore Canyon. Uh, we're right now sitting on Verde limestone and alluvial fill that has come down from the mountain. We'll get to that in a moment. Next slide. Um, so the picture there is from uh, the old Echo Canyon site, and it captures the geology, I think, beautifully because you can see the three main periods of the history of the valley there. I have no idea what mine that is, though. It's just looked pretty and was perfect for whatever. So anyway, the Martin and Red Loam limestones are the next oldest rocks. Um, so you got sort of Devonian, Pennsylvanian oceans. Um, Judith Bach in Jerome is on those rocks, by the way. Um, also, these rocks eroded from the mountains, which were on the basis of some of the topsoil of the college vineyard. Uh, AK found a fossil a while back. I'm and, surprised. And that came from those rocks that were eroded down. And so I saw it and immediately recognized what it was and told her about it. I don't think she remembers. Was it in the shape of a heart? No. It was not in the shape of a heart. <laughs> Although I have seen crinoids in that shape, like crinoids base, but that's in kind of there. Um, so the Echo Canyon site shows the next 270 million years. At the bottom, you've got the Bell Rock member of the Schnebley Hill Formation. Um, ocean rock, basically laid down at the edge of a desert by the ocean. Um, I said ocean repeatedly because ocean shows up in the wines from that site, I think. Um, the Sedona Taj from there many years ago was really weird because you could get all the rock layers in it. Um, so we got sandstone laid down by the shore of a sea. Um, looked very similar to coastal Namibia today. Then uh, all the rocks that were laid down on top of that have eroded away. Next up is the basalts of House Mountain. House Mountain is a very, very interesting volcano. Um, it's a shield volcano, so formed lots and lots of lava, slow oozing eruptions, not like the super volcanoes of the Chiricahuas. Um, but after that a volcano erupted at the edge of the Mugion Rim, uh, those mountains over there, uh, the hackberries, erupted, blocked the exit of the valley, created a huge lake, that lake eventually buried all of House Mountain sediment, and now it started to erode out again. So that's that top layer of white rock there. Um, so it was an ephemeral lake that lasted off and on for about 7 million years. Most of the vineyards in the valley are growing on the Verde Formation, with the exception of a few private vineyards in, Sino in Sedona. Um, the ones that have aforementioned, 
And uh, the Echo Canyon site is kind of a weird agglomination of all three. Next slide. So we got the next one, which I should have said we should pour Oops. now. Oh, my bad. So um, you, can, you can say something else. Find the interesting stuff. So anyway, this is the House Mountain Grenache. Um, I helped pound in posts in this vineyard. That was the start of my career in the wine industry in Arizona, as a matter of fact. I uh, was pounding in posts in the middle of January, which is also, uh, asked Abby, by the way, for the story of uh, hitting me on the head with the post That's a good one. That occurred on that site. Oh, um, <laughs> that explains something. It does explain a lot about me, doesn't it? Shut up, Gary. I know you're going to say something. <laughs> so this particular wine was grown on limestone conglomerate deposits atop the basalt of House Mountain. In that vineyard, you see a progression from the top of the vineyard to the bottom of the vineyard from pure basalt to verde formation limestones. Um, there are more conglomerate there than limestone because it's right at the edge. You have clasps actually from the volcano there. Clast, by the way, is a geologic term, meaning a piece of rock embedded in another piece of rock. That's different from the piece of rock that you're talking about. Um, so this wine is a little bit different. Uh, it was aged half on Arizona White Oak, part of Gary, um, part of Eric Golomsky's project on aging some of these wines in local oak, which I agree uh, is kind of cool. Uh, I wish that we could see more of that because uh, we've got a lot of native oak species in Arizona, and uh, it'd be fun to see what it does. Uh, half neutral French oak. It's pretty tannic, but not, I feel, as tannic as the Calibri Grenache uh, that we just tasted. Um, that's probably the oak influence rather than the wine. I've tasted some other uh, Grenaches coming from the Verde Valley that have very, very low or average tannins like the Wilcox that we tasted. Um, super earthy, bright watermelon, jolly rancher, and cherry, um, cherry in general. That's what I got on the palate for this one. Don't worry um, about it. No, no um, So the Verde Valley, because of its messed up geology, um, very complex geology, you get different Tawarn notes in different vineyards, oftentimes. But in those coming from the Verde formation, I've kind of seen uh, a higher acidity for the reds, a little bit smoky rather than earthy. Um, but that could also be due to the influence of a lot of forest fire smoke that's been gathering in the valley for the last couple of vintages. Uh, but you also get a salty character, like sea salt um, or evaporites. Um, when the ancient Verde Lake was here, it was an evaporite lake and left a lot of evaporite deposits, which means that there's a lot of salts in this rock. And in fact, there is an actual salt mine, or used to be historically, near Camp Verde. Um, whites often have a sort of limestone dust sea salt thing, um, but it's a, often a lot stronger than Wilcox. It's easy to pick up. You don't have to hunt for it. So what are you guys getting on this one? Anybody? Brown sugar on the nose. Don't. Sweet tarts, yeah. That sweet tart thing is kind of the combination of the tannins and the acidity all combining together for me anyway, with that sort of uh, raspberry flavor. Any? Anise and wormwood. Yeah, 
have noticed that too, actually, in a few vintages. I didn't pick that up on this one when we tasted it the other day. Like? Um, have you ever had absinthe? Yeah. That's wormwood. Okay. So it's aged on that kind of thing. Uh, wormwood is a type of herb. Um, that's used to help make absinthe. So absinthe, from what I understand, and I don't know absinthe very well, so if one of you guys knows more about absinthe than I do, please feel free to correct me. Um, or if you drink a lot more than I have, yeah. yes. I know exactly. But uh, anyway, um, it's sort of made from anise and wormwood, from my understanding. Um, I don't know whether it's fermented or if it's added after distillation or what. Added after, okay. Thank you, Gary. So, out of the Grenaches, guys, which is your favorite so far? Number three? I like the Southwest Point Center. Southwest Point Center? You're, are you just saying that because Michael Pierce is in the room? <laughs> Michael, which is your favorite? Uh, okay. <laughs> Gary? I can't say Yeah. Uh, Calibri is one of the few vineyards that I've really, really wanted to see, but never have had the chance. And one time I almost had the chance, but then got violently ill before going. But anyway, next slide. Chino Valley. I know a lot of you are going, what the hell? Why are we covering Chino? Chino only has one vineyard and it sucks. And that's, that's because you've only tasted Granite Creek, by the way. Um, love their Chardonnays but I feel that they're kind of weak on some of the other varietals. There, I said it, it's an official wine monk statement. So, the oldest rocks in the area are remains of yet another island arc, but different than the one that created Jerome. It was known as the Prescott Arc. Both arcs slammed into the side of the North American continent. I was just drifting across the ocean about a billion years ago. Next oldest rocks again, oceanic in origin. Uh, these are the same seas we met in passing in the Verde Valley. We also met these same seas in passing in Sonoyan and Wilcox. Uh, these left the Tapit Sandstone, the Martin Redwall Limestones again. Uh, 540 to about 310 million years ago in these sites. So these rocks are overlain in some places by later volcanic rocks dating from the Oligocene, uh, Miocene, and Pliocene. Try saying those five countries with us. Actually, that'd be a great band name. Um, so that set of landscapes there forms northern Chino Valley near Paulden, which has been the epicenter for a lot of recent planting. Del Rio Springs, four other vineyards have planted there since then. Um, we're going to explore the uh, Del Rio Springs Pinot here in just a moment, which I think is pretty good for Pinot, and I normally detest Pinot. Am I switching? Um, one second. Um, after this last sentence. Um, so, Granite Creek Winery has a little bit different geology. Um, they're growing on alluvial deposits from erosion uh, about two million years ago. Next slide now. Go. So the wine is the Del Rio Springs 2014 Pinot Noir. So they don't grow Chino um, in Chino Grenache. Um, I, actually, I don't know that anyone's tried Grenache, but it's a little bit higher elevation than any of the other sites in uh, Arizona that we've been exploring today. Uh, but it seems to be the only place where you can grow good Pinot consistently. Every vintage I've had from Chino, uh, of the Pinot coming from Del Rio Springs specifically, has been pretty damn good. Uh, the Pinot, the Pinot I tasted at uh, Grant Creek was a blend. 
of California and Arizona fruit, but it was okay. Um, but again, part of it is that California influence. I just don't like California peanut. That's my own snobbery going. Um, but to me, this is very reminiscent of uh, something coming from Burgundy, more specifically Cook d'Or, uh, rather than Oregon or California. Um, but apparently the rock pressure, um, which is a big thing limiting Pinot in Arizona, isn't as great as in southern Arizona, and this is coming from communication with the guys at Del Rio, Rick and Maricor, uh, because you get these really strong northerly winds that kind of dry out the grapes after every storm. Um, and it's also too cold for Grenache, apparently, they were talking about. So they planted a lot of cooler weather varietals. On site, they've also got Vignoles, uh, Grunewaldliner, uh, Carmenera. They're going to be planting Chardonnay this year. Someone just down the road from them is going to be planting Coraldigo and um, Kerner, and a few other weird things that I can't remember, like Fiano, and then others that I really can't remember. Um, so this wine is kind of the uh, cute, quiet, geeky girl next door, possibly French foreign exchange student. So Tawar notes in Chino Valley. I feel like it's a little early to tell, partly because we don't have the same varietals to compare. Uh, the best way to probably do this will be once, uh, once we get more Chardonnay, which was my other thought. Um, but I didn't, couldn't find anyone growing Chardonnay in Sonoyna. So I settled for Grenache instead. But there's kind of earthy notes, kind of like licking limestone-based clay. Again, like I said, as someone who was a geology minor, I licked and ate a lot of rocks, both growing up and as part of my course assignments. Uh, if you ever wonder why geologists are so weird, that's probably why, uh, just for the record. Um, but I think it's going to be easier to discern as the vines get older. Uh, the vines at Del Rio, I think, are no older than six years old, if I remember correctly. Um, and while the vines at um, Grant Mountain, sorry, Grant Creek, I get confused with the brewery a lot. This is why they need different names. Um, well, the vines that are older, um, it's a completely different style of winemaking, low sulfites. It's hard to determine ageability. And because those wines don't age, don't always transfer very well when you're taking them home to drink. Um, it can be very difficult to kind of take notes on that. Um, but I think it's interesting. What do you guys think? That's just... What's the elevation? A Chino? A Chino, I think it's closer to 45 to 5,000 feet. Um, Angela, do you know? Angela, she lives there. Angela, do you know the elevation, per chance, right off the top of your head of Chino? For Chino. Pressure, 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 on the spot, on the spot. Uh, yeah, above 4,000. So it's a little higher. Um, one of the cool things I've noticed about geology is that um, Chino has that completely different geology. It's a little bit calmer than the rest of Arizona. It didn't get as upthrust or as jumbled as the rest of the state did in a lot of cases. Uh, you know, we've looked at all the other geologists. We want to go back a couple slides. Uh, one, up, forward one, sorry, forward two. Forward three now. Uh, forget it. Um, we're hopelessly lost now. Um, but the geology there is 
If you notice, it's mostly shades of one color. There we go. Ah, oh, you wanted Chino, sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay. So you see all that, those are all, north of Chino, those are all, with the exception of that orange, more or less all sedimentary rocks from the Paleozoic. Um, so it didn't get nearly as jumbled. You're getting all this influence from one particular set of rocks versus multiple. Um, I, that, from what my understanding is, looking at geological maps of Bur Burgundy is very similar to that uh, geology there, where you have basically volcanics that overlie the ocean bed sediments. Um, I don't remember if the ages are the same, though, off the top of my head. I forgot to look at that stuff. Anyway, I want to go forward. So what do these regions all have in common? A complex mix of geological characters, by and large. Aquifers, but that's just because, you know, water is necessary for growing grapes. You've got a combination of volcanic and sedimentary rocks, even in Chino. And you've got rocks with kind of a wide variety of ages between them. For in, you know, in, here in the Verde Valley, you've got Precambrian rocks where you can see out your window here, overlying more recent stuff that's alluvial fill and from the Cenozoic. In Chino, you've got those Miocene, Pliocene, and Oligocene volcanics over uh, the Paleozoic ocean bed. So you've got this wide disparity of rock aging between them. Next slide. So I decided to do a little bit of homework and explored a little bit of different areas in Arizona geology and decided to see now, just looking at geology, not knowing anything else, uh, where, would, where, where might some other great grape-growing areas in Arizona be? So we got Globe Miami, which I found out when I was down in Sonoda. Oh, yeah, Mark Ferris is making wine for a vineyard there. Uh, Safford, uh, St. Paisius Monastery grows a small block of Barbera on site. It's so far there, the only ones that I know of that are growing there. It's pretty darn good, but you kind of have to be orthodox to drink it because uh, it's their communion wine. Uh, Kingman looks interesting. Apparently, there's two vineyards there. Go figure. Uh, rye and sunflower looks very promising in terms of geologic history there, as does Slugman in the Aubrey Valley, which reminds me a lot of Chino, but it's about uh, 500 feet higher from what I understand, so you're probably going to be looking at hybrid varietals. Prescott Valley, right on the other side of these mountains, look yeah. really promising. Uh, Snowflake looks great, and then I just found out the other day that uh, Nikki Begley uh, got some pictures of a vineyard up there called Mugion Cellars or something. She's no longer there. Damn, I was, like gonna, I was gonna harass her about the grapes that were being grown there. Damn, anyway. So I found out the other day, literally after I finished the slide, looking on Facebook, and I'm just like, son of a bitch. <laughs> Benson looks promising as well, and there is one vineyard growing on there. Um, Rancho Maria Vineyards as well as Charon Vineyards is kind of on that area. And uh, Marinci looks like it could be promising for grape growing as well. So anyway, special thanks. This is the thank you portion. Uh, I want to thank Kit Callaghan for bringing actually two bottles of this because he's like, oh, just because you need another in his quiet Kentish way. Um, from Callaghan Vineyards in Sonoya. We got Eric Golomsky. Uh, I got these two, admittedly, the Page Springs ones for bottling as payment. So it's like, sweet, free wine. Um, yes. For Cornville to calibrate. We got uh, Mer Rick and Maricor Skladzen, and I'm totally mispronouncing and butchering that, from Rio Springs and Chino Valley. And then we got, of course, Michael Pierce and you guys from the Southwest Wine Center. Thank you guys for letting me speak today. Uh, hope I was edifying. Last slide. Oh, just one more. Oh, no, I thought that there was, was I thought I threw one on there for like questions, concerns, comments, critiques, everything. So uh, any questions or comments from the audience? Yes. Um, the three rocks, the geology, 
So the question is kind of how much you have to work against the rock to make a good wine. Yeah. Um, the answer to that, quite frankly, is I honestly don't know. Um, not being a winemaker myself and only hanging around winemakers like a groupie. Um, exhibit A, we've got one and a half winemakers in this room. Well, and then there's Ted with the still. <laughs> Ted with the thing that we can't mention. <laughs> um, that's going to be edited out of the podcast. <laughs> um, Gary's the assistant winemaker at uh, Fashion. Oh, and Aaron. Sorry, you're so quiet over there in the corner. So we've got essentially two winemakers between three people. <laughs> um, I don't honestly know. Um, my thought and guess for this would be um, there is a small influence. It's perhaps, uh, it's perhaps that influence is always there. Um, my guess is that it must be possible because California certainly removes that influence of the geology in their wines. Um, Napa and Sonoma, it's overlain by so much oak that I can't taste anything. So my guess is if you want to block out the, that local terroir, you just throw, a, throw it in a bunch of new oak, would be my guess. Um, and that's how you would take care of that. Again, that's my theory. I have no practice with this whatsoever, so take what I answer there as a grain of salt. And I'm sure the lawsuits of California winemakers will be flying in towards me any minute now. Next question. Any? Mueller. Mueller. Ferris Bueller. There's a white Toyota Camry out front. That's a slide song. Bueller. Yes. Not whole cluster pressing, as far as I'm aware. Say again. Uh, as far as I'm aware, there was no whole cluster fermentation on that Pinot. Just, just crushed and distemmed. Um, my understanding is, uh, from talking to Rick, is that next year they will experiment with some whole cluster fermentation. Uh, for one of the clones, I think they were talking about the Pomar clone. But again, I was pretty toasted at the time and I don't remember that all too well. Um, but as far as I'm aware, there was no whole cluster fermentation on that peanut. How would we get more? That's a great wine, but I mean, how could I? If we were what day will be winemakers? How can we get more out of those grapes more into that wine? Well, um, the answer to that question, in part A, is the backup I brought if that bottle was corked. <laughs> so this is that reserve peanut, which was actually aged on a little bit newer oak. So that's one way you can get more out of it, is by putting in just the right amount of oak. Not too much oak, but just, you know, it's like the Goldilocks formula here. This one, this wine had too much oak, this wine didn't have enough oak, but this one had it just right. <laughs> um, so oak is one way, but whole cluster fermentation, what you're talking about would be another possible way to get some more tannins out of that. Um, the third way I could think of would be maybe upping the bricks uh, content to make it more juicy, more fruity. More alcohol, more strong. I want to say it was harvested at 22 bricks, but don't quote me on that. Uh, next question. Come on, I'm orthodox. We do things in threes. There has to be one third question out there. Yes. I do have a blog. Um, the blog is azwinemonk.com. Uh, I tried to update it at least twice a week with different wine reviews. Um, it's less reviews and more of, this is what I taste in this wine. I try not to make value judgments because I really hate that in Wine Spectator. 
oh, this one is 95 points. It's better than 94. No, it's not. The point system is all made up. It's like, how, whose line is it anyway? Well, the points are all made up and nothing really matters. <laughs> so that's my view of the whole point scale system. Yes, it's great for marketing, but that score really doesn't tell you anything about the wine itself. Other than, this wine is more marketable because it's a 95 as opposed to a 90. Anyway, so that's where you find my reviews. Mostly what I do is I try to let the wine kind of speak for itself. Um, so you'll find notes on the production of the wine as much as I can learn from it from the winemaker. Um, the winemakers in Sonoida, when they saw me, they're like, oh, Christ, he's back. <laughs> <laughs> Followed by, yes, this is what I did. No, this is not what I did. Yes, this is what I did. Shut up, Cody, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> Michael also knows this when when the podcast that I did with him with the One Stone Syrah, um, way, way back when I, towards the very beginning of the walk. But I talk about how the wine was made as much as I know, where the fruit is from. If I have uh, information on bricks, quotients, and oak, and that sort of thing, that'll all be in one section. Then I have what I smell, what I taste, what I would pair with it, and then the fun sort of part, which is my thoughts on it, um, I like to personify the wines I drink, um, as you saw on some of the slides. Um, so it's like, if this wine was a person, what kind of person would it be? Um, so that's kind of the way my blog is laid out. The podcasts are very much ad hoc. Sometimes they're lectures like this one will be eventually a podcast up there. Um, others are me sitting with a winemaker talking about a wine and their personal history and how they got involved. Others are often me and Gary sitting around fucking around drinking something. Um, Probably, I think I have more podcasts that I've recorded with you than anybody else. Probably. Um, yeah, sometimes Gary and I will drink, drink wine while we're doing repair work on cars. So, usually my car. And usually it's kind of entertaining. Um, but anyway. So, I think we have one last. Yes. And then we'll have to wrap up. Ah. Uh, people tell me all the time that I'm something very dark, brooding, and tannic. The two main answers that seem to come up most are Tanat and Alicante Boucher. The most memorable reason for this uh, came from Chris Potier at Tumbleweed, who said, kilts have tannins, and sometimes they wear a kilt. Um, but yeah, those two seem to be the most common answers. Anyway, thank you guys again for letting me speak. You guys all have fun. Uh, drink something nice. Um, if any of you guys want to take something home, ask me politely and I may let you. You're welcome, guys.